Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning, and thank you for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium, uh, and has been made mention of already, but an hour less of sleep, it's just a real bummer. I also, the worst part is I gotta figure out like how to change the clock in my car, you know, so like it's all kind of just stressful. So, but I'm really glad that you're here as we get to continue this series through the great book of Acts. We're looking at the ways that Jesus is working through his people to build his church and the idea of, and why we even called this witnesses is we get to witness that reality, all right? And so in some ways, we just kind of get this front row seat to see how he has been faithful in building his church for 2,000 years, and yet there's also this other call that we are not just passive spectators. We are called to engage. And so if you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, you are also invited. You have the great privilege to bear witness about the reality of Jesus, all right? Now, if that's not your story, you're here this morning, like, I don't know if I believe any of this. That is totally fine. We're so glad that you're here, and our hope is that you will hear witness of the work of Jesus and what it means to be a follower of him. And so where we are in the story is this. We're at a point uh, in the book of Acts. We're getting near, closer to the end of the book, and the apostle Paul, all right, has had this he used to be named Saul, and he had this radical transformation. He meets Jesus. He goes from a persecutor of the church to a follower of Jesus who's helping to start new churches all over the known world. And he's been going from city to city on these kind of missionary journeys, helping to start new churches. So he begins preaching the gospel. He begins talking about Jesus. People become followers. He sees leaders raised up, and then he goes on to the next spot. And where we find ourselves this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 19. All right, I'll give you some more details here in a moment. But Paul is in a city of Ephesus. And so just for a moment, all right, maybe you've actually traveled uh, to that part of the world. It's in modern day Turkey, all right, but I've not been there, so I have to rely on, you know, Google images and things of that sort. But just picture for a moment, you're with Paul and you walk into this ancient city and I don't know what comes to mind, but here's a few things that would be helpful for you and I to know as we get into this text to sort of understand like, oh, this is this place and it's a place of influence. It's on a major trade route, had a booming economy, all right? It was in this very fertile area, this fertile valley, so lots of opportunities for things to, to grow, all right? And so it is just bustling. Just picture a place with tons of activity, lots of people coming in, um, and in the center of all of this would have been, this is a replica, all right, this is not uh, current because it's been torn down, all right, but there was this temple to Artemis, all right, it's the Greek goddess Artemis, this goddess of fertility, and so surrounding then all of this was this, you know, sort of cult-like behavior uh, as she was this goddess of uh, fertility. There's sort of, you know, uh, prostitution cult kind of stuff that was happening, and so it's just a very odd church service, right, in and around this, uh, this temple, and in the known world, all right, like in Athens, we looked at, there was the Parthenon. We were talking about that recently here in the book of Acts. This particular temple that was four times the size of that, just this massive thing, just having this massive, kind of casting this massive shadow over the entire city. And there was an entire economy built around this that we'll look at in a moment. We're going to look at the disruptive uh, power of the gospel in this particular city. And so you got this massive, massive building. You got this massive temple. In fact, it became the place, it was the, the largest bank in the world at that time. And so there's tons of just money being exchanged. There's all sorts of powerful people, influencers of culture and society that would have been in Ephesus. And so this is a very strategic spot for the Apostle Paul to end up. 
All right, let me read you a description here. Kent Hughes in his commentary says this about Ephesus. He says, Ephesus' strategic position made her the treasure house of Asia and the mother of materialism and ambition. Sound like any place that you and I might know, right? We just look around us, like lots of drive, lots of ambition, but lots of materialism. She was the site of the temple of Artemis or Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 127 marbled pillars rose 60 feet to support the gorgeous ceiling, many of them inlaid with gold and rare gems. The temple's huge canopy covering an area of 425 feet in length and 200 feet in width housed the multi-breasted image of Artemis, supposed to have fallen from the stars. This temple was the center for a thriving cult of fertility worship. So this is the place that the Apostle Paul finds himself. And so I want to read together for a moment Acts chapter 19. So if you brought a Bible, please turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's some paperback ones on a couple of the tables back there. You can get up, grab one of those, and turn to page 1028. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we would encourage you to take one of those home with you. If you've got a Bible and some translation that's like, it's kind of difficult to make sense of, grab one of those. Or the other option you have is to get out your phone and go to cpwp.life, swipe over the second card that says message notes. And anything, including the text this morning that is up on the screens, will be, uh, will be there for you to follow along. And so I want to go ahead and read this, and we're going to see what happens in this ancient city of Ephesus, this city that had... I would say lots of similarity to our cultural moment, all right, where there's a place of influence and affluence and there's just a lot of things happening. What did it look like when the gospel came into this place? Because what we're going to see is you picture yourself maybe in that place and you're looking out over the temple, like imagine that entire city being turned upside down, thrown into this chaotic situation because a man showed up and started talking about Jesus. And then more people started talking about Jesus. And they told their friends about Jesus. And suddenly, the entire town is being turned upside down. That's what we're going to read about here in Acts 19, 23 to 41. And so I will read this. And so we sort of have it fresh in our minds. And we'll make our way back through this. But beginning in verse 23, it says this. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and, and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, whom were Paul's companions in travel. Verse 30, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of him sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried one thing and some another for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put forward and Alexander motioning with his hand wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
Verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper to the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So this is God's word that we get to look at this morning. And so what I want to start with is just look at these verses. And then we're going to look at some additional text that preceded it. But do you notice what happens? It says the Apostle Paul is persuading people that Artemis is not the one to be worshipped, that Jesus alone is to be worshipped. And so there's a sort of persuasive disruption that is taking place. And the language that is used early on, it says, there arose no little disturbance. And we can agree with that, right? Like if you could fill, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, but if you could have an entire stadium, this outdoor amphitheater filled with upwards of 25,000 people that for two hours straight were shouting, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, all right? Like you might've been to a sporting event that you thought was intense, all right? And the, the, the meter got really loud as people began cheering, but I'm guessing it didn't last for two hours straight, all right? 25,000 people, grant, Fill this particular space. All right, so when we're looking at all of this, even what precedes that, it's fair to say no little disturbance. It's like a way of saying, wait, pay attention. Like there's something monumental that is shifting in this city. And it was about the way. Now, if we're gonna look at this and understand the implications for your life and my life, here's what we need to see in this, all right? If you're wondering, like, what does it mean by the way? This was a particular sort of phrase that was used. It was language that was given to describe this movement of people that were following Jesus. All right? You're like, well, were they called Christians? Yes, we, we saw that in the, book, in, uh, in the city of Antioch. They were called Christians for the first time, which is this idea of being imitators of Jesus or little Christ. It was a group of people that sought to follow Jesus. And in our day and age, here's what I would put before you. We oftentimes want to know what's the bare minimum sort of entrance requirement so that I can get in, all right? So I can kind of save my soul from going to hell, all right? I just need to know what's the bare minimum, what is the prayer I need to pray, what's the box I need to check, but that is never how the scriptures talk about salvation or following Jesus. In fact, to talk about the way, I would say, is a much more accurate depiction of the calling to be a disciple. And so this disturbance arose concerning the way, a group of people so devoted to following Jesus that it had transformed everything about their life. And we're gonna see this play out in this text. How would we be described? Would we be described as a church that is following the way, that we are all in? We're not reserved to just say, okay, well, I'll give Jesus some time on Sunday, maybe once a week at some sort of community group or some sort of class that we go to, but the rest, it's mine, all right? It's my job, and it's my finances, and it's my relationship, and it's my house, and it's my time, or do we go to him and say, it's all yours, Lord. Whatever you would have for me, I'm in this glad submission to you because of what you've done in my life, the grace that you've extended, has your heart, has my heart, has our heart as a church been gripped in such a way that we would be described not as kind of bare minimum entrance, you know, requirement kind of people that would just check a box, I prayed a prayer when I was a certain age. 
would your life be characterized as people looking at you and be like, man, I may not believe in Jesus, but what I know of Jesus, that person increasingly looks like Jesus, that they're caught up in this movement. This is what brings about this persuasive disruption. And one of the things that we know is Demetrius, he rounds up this group of people, and we'll talk about why in just a moment. And he begins using the words that the Apostle Paul must have made very, very clear in a confrontational way, but also in a way that is rooted and grounded in love. Paul must have said this over and over again, because here you have a man who doesn't follow Jesus, who knows and can summarize the message that Paul has been declaring, or at least part of it. God's made with hands are not God's. Paul was emphatic in that. He looked over the city of Ephesus like he did when we saw him in Athens and he says he sees that the city is full of idols. He sees a group of people that have tapped into how they've been designed, that everybody is created to be a worshiper, all right? Every single person walking the planet now, past, present, and into the future is a worshiper. Everybody's worshiping. The question becomes, are you worshiping Jesus or something else? Or another way to think about it is everybody's a disciple. And you're either being discipled by Jesus and living the way of Jesus, or you're being discipled by a narrative of the world that says, you've got to prove yourself, you've got to perform, you've got to achieve, you've got to do it all. And when we get in this realm, we're in the realm of taking a good thing that the Lord has given to us and making it an ultimate thing or a God substitute. And in their case, they had this actual temple, but the reality is it's the same issue that plagues us today. And so Paul speaks out and he says, God made, God's made with hands. They're not gods at all. Why are you giving your worship to that thing that won't satisfy? If you were to look out today, he might look and say, why are you giving your life and just sacrificing so much on the altar of career success? That can't save you. And so all sorts of different things, but in this particular place, Demetrius at least knows the message says, all right, Paul's been saying God's made with hands are not God's. And then he says these words. Did you catch this when I was reading this earlier? Men. So he gathers up a group of people, all right? And he says, listen, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. That it's very important for them to keep the machine of worship of Artemis going because they have a livelihood that depends on it. They've made a good living. They are quite well to do because of this. And it's starting to feel threatened. If people began believing that what they're making is actually just this little trinket there that maybe was, have some great craftsmanship behind it but ultimately can't bring life. If people saw the emptiness that that thing is, he's suddenly freaking out a bit. And he's like, oh my goodness, like we're going to lose our business. And what we see here in Acts 19 is what we continue to see in the world. You get to the point of threatening somebody's wallet, their pocketbook, their bank account, suddenly people want to fight, right? Like we feel this. If, if our livelihood was threatened, like we're going to dig our heels in and we're going to try and combat whatever is coming at us. We see this. And he's a smart man. He not only ties it to the fact that they might lose their business, but then he even ties it. It's, it's sort of this nationalism thing that pops up. He begins to tie it to sort of, you know, God and country, where he's just like, this is our goddess Artemis and what we're known for and all of this. And don't we see that? That can continue to play out on all sorts of aspects of the political spectrum. I'm not talking one side or the other. There can be this call to just sort of rally people and get them in a fervor and get people, even like the crowd here, we're mad. We don't even know why. Why are we mad, right? And so what happened a couple thousand years ago, it continues to play out. 
He says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. So I'm trying to think about it. I've been thinking about this, like, okay, what would be a present-day context? And I'm gonna put a picture up on the screen, and I do not want you to connect the dots and say, ooh, what's up on the screen? Jamie thinks that that's modern-day Artemis, that's a temple, that's idolatry, all right? Because here's, here's what's up on the screen. Let's talk Disney for a moment, all right? I don't mean it that way, all right? This is not you needing to go and burn your passes. Like, literally, I'll take them, man. Don't burn them, all right? Um, not advocating that. I just wanted to try and think through, in our context, what would be something that like our community would feel, all right? Now, one of the taglines for Disney down through the years, you had Disneyland, the happiest place on earth, and then Disney World, they used the language of the most magical place on earth, okay? You could debate whether that's true or not, all right? Uh, but um, if you go in August, I would tell you it's not, all right? But anyway, so you're spending some time there. Now, imagine if Cross Point Winter Park and other churches began declaring a message that, you know what? The most magical place on earth is not at Disney World, but rather it's being connected to the body of Christ that is the local church. And imagine that message got out in such a way that people began flocking to churches rather than going and spending their money at Disney, all right? Now, this is not an either or. You can still go to Disney and be part of the church. So again, don't make those connections. But just think for a moment, all right? If suddenly people stopped going to this theme park in our community, all right, and instead they were flocking into churches. Do you think for a moment that there might be some people in the higher levels of, you know, the, the Disney structure that would might begin to freak out a little bit? And think about the repercussions and the way it would spill out and sort of the ripple effect. I mean, think about it. If ticket sales are down, suddenly you have people's, their, their careers are impacted. You have people's income. I mean, these, these would be serious things. Hotels in the area, it's not just about that park, but there would begin to be an effect there. Local restaurants, concessions, rental cars. I mean, we could go on and on and on, but if suddenly people stop going, you can see the effect. And don't think for a moment that people wouldn't freak out and think, how do we stop this message? We need to make sure that we stay on people, front and center of people's minds that we're where the magic happens. This is the place to be. Forget about that church. It's this sort of thing that's happening in Ephesus, that Paul is going in and saying, what you're worshiping, those are gods made of hands. I got the real thing. Do you want in on that? And people begin flocking to it. They're intrigued. They're giving their lives over to this way of Jesus. And in doing so, then, they realize that thing that we've given our lives to previously didn't ultimately satisfy. And so imagine now you're Demetrius. Imagine you're somebody that has worked in this particular industry, that your livelihood is tied to it. There are real ripple effects that are being felt here. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit God, says, here's when you know you sort of tapped into, you kind of struck a nerve in regards to idolatry, false gods, false worship. He says, one of the ways you know this is he says, one of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. When we center our lives on the idol, so whatever that thing is, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. Fear. Pay attention to the fear, to the panic that exists in your heart. I need to pay attention to the panic, the fear that exists in my heart because it's telling us something. God in his grace is telling us, listen, Like that thing is being threatened. You need to 
take some time and consider, have you elevated that good gift from the Lord? Again, maybe that's a career, maybe that's a relationship, maybe that's the amount of money that you have, being well-liked by people, the health, that, like the shape that you're in, trying to have a certain look. Like, have you elevated that thing to the point, like if that's threatened, if suddenly that went away, you're like, I don't know if I have meaning. I don't know if I have purpose. I don't know if I can live this life. And so fear begins to kick in. And so what did we learn? They began chanting. It starts with this group of craftsmen, and they're like, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then they get more people in on it. And suddenly, this entire outdoor amphitheater that does, they, historians will tell you, archaeologists will tell you, like had upwards of, could seat upwards of 25,000 people. This place begins to fill up. And people for two hours, like a dude comes in there and tries, hey, 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 let me quiet the crowd. And they're like, who are you? And they're just like, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And for two hours, this continues. And now I can look at that and be dismissive of it or think that's insane, that's crazy, I can't believe it. But then I gotta think about that quote I just read. If our thing in life is threatened, if the thing we're basing our life on is threatened, like, we respond in the same way. Maybe we don't gather with 25,000 people and start this massive chant, but what would you be chanting? Our hearts are chanting something all the time. I need, and you fill in the blank, in order to think that your life has meaning and purpose and fulfillment. It's the nature of the human heart. It is looking for something to worship, something to give its affections to. And until that is rightly directed to the God of the universe, we'll keep chanting, we'll keep living in fear, we'll keep looking for something. This is not some crazy group of people 2,000 years ago that, oh my goodness, I can't believe they got swept up in this. This is you and me and your neighbors and your coworkers and your family members and your friends. We all in our heart are chanting something. And like that crowd, did you notice that language? Some of them are like, hey, why are we here? I don't know. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians, right? Just the sort of mob mentality that, that takes over. What's going on? They don't necessarily know. And I don't know that we all together all the times know, but the Lord of the universe loves us enough. Part of the reason he's drawn you here this morning is because he cares for you. He loves you. He wants your heart to be rightly directed in worship of him, not to rob you of joy, but so that you might actually experience joy and peace and what God would actually have for you. And yet we continue to chant things. We continue to look for things, all right? And so I wanted to ask this, this question for just a moment. And I'm sure we could tease this out and talk through a lot of different implications. But there's this persuasive disruption. Can you imagine for a moment if the church was characterized as the way and there's this devotion to Jesus, not to earn his affection, we already have it. We're not adding anything to it. Jesus has already paid it all. It is finished, but now we live in this, just this humble, glad response, like Jesus, whatever I have is a gift from you. Like, I'm all in. Imagine if the church, and I don't mean just Cross Point Winter Park, but just think in our community. Imagine if the church that is represented here, the followers of Jesus, had this devotion to the purposes of God, to the kingdom of God, that we would embody the words where Jesus said, seek first the kingdom. Not in a perfect way, 
But if we were so gripped by this is the best possible way to live, like I'm all in, why would I give my time and energy and affections to lesser things? Like I want the best. So what would happen? Imagine for a moment maybe the disruption that could occur. Like this is what I want. I think this is what we should want for our city, that the church is being the church in such a way that the spirit of God, there's this movement of God that the spirit blows in these ways and it disrupts culture. Like people are freaking out because they're like, this thing that there was a market for, it doesn't exist anymore or it's waning. So think about this for a moment. Like imagine if the culture was so threatened by the repercussions that it began to be felt in just sort of the darkest places, the recesses of our culture. So maybe here's a few that I, that I wrote down. What if the market for pornography and strip clubs and human trafficking began to dry up because people began to repent of their idolatry? We had such an impact. It's like suddenly the market begins to go away because people are like, I love Jesus. I see people as image bearers, not as objects to be used. There's a repentance of that. There's a repentance of the culture of self. And suddenly people that made their living on these horrific things begin to be like, dude, our market is drying up. There would be fear. They'd freak out. Absolutely. But imagine the persuasive disruption that we could be part of. What if the market for abortion clinics began to disappear and was instead replaced by more and more adoption centers? That people who make their living, if you don't think for a moment that is driven by money, you're naive. It is driven by that. What if that began to wane and people were like, our market is disappearing because the church is rising up. People are engaged in the way of Jesus. Disruption, beautiful, redemptive disruption. What happened in Ephesus can happen here. We can't read this and think for a moment, well, that was great, but God doesn't work in that way. How come? Why would we limit God in that way? The same spirit that inhabited the people in Ephesus is with you. If you're a follower of him, it's with me. And God is calling us to something more. I even began to think about this, like it's so easy even, maybe what if the market for in the name of sort of self-help or sort of pseudo-Christian books and literature and resources, what if that began to wane because people had a hunger for the word of God? Instead of books and resources that trumpet you in sort of this Christian light version of thing that you're the hero of the story, we started to realize, no, I'm not the hero, Jesus is the hero, and that market just suddenly finds itself without any sort of audience, no consumers for it, because people are like, I'm hungry for the word of God. Give me the word, give me the meat, not this fluff stuff that tells me I'm amazing. No, you're a sinner in need of the grace of Jesus, so am I, he's amazing, get that in the word. Like, what if that began to happen? That would be amazing, that would be disruption. What if just at a very practical level, the cultural exhaustion that you and I feel began to wane because we're no longer controlled by the God of money? I need more. I've got to achieve more. I've got to have more. I've got to prove. I've got to acquire. I've got to do this. And it's exhausting. What if we got off the treadmill of that stupidity, that cul-de-sac where we go round and round claiming that we've made progress and we're just spinning our wheels and said, that's exhausting, but Jesus offers me something more. Imagine the societal disruption that could happen. That is the vision I think we're given here. Now, we can look at that and be like, okay, great, sign me up. Like, what does that actually look like? And so here's what I wanna do for the remaining time that we have together this morning is just try and answer from this text, how might that actually happen? How can you and I, as the church, as the way, begin to see this stuff play out? And I think there's some clues that we get in the verses that preceded the section that we just read. All right, and I think the first thing we need to look at is that there's this prevailing proclamation. 
Look with me at verses eight to 10, all right? And there's kind of these bookends that are framed. We'll look at eight to 10 and then also verse 20. So preceding all of this, all of this disruption, back in verse eight, we're still in Ephesus. It says he, that's Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he, that's Paul, he withdrew from them. And he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. If we're going to see this sort of disruption happen, there has to be this commitment, this unwavering commitment to the word of God being proclaimed. And if you think for a moment that that is just by somebody on a stage with the microphone and all of that, we've actually missed it. It includes this. But it's all of us if you're a follower of Jesus. Because verse 20 says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It increased and it prevailed. Like We see this going forth. That people are carrying it. They're seeing themselves as heralds of this good news. And so let's just talk about this for a moment. What does that look like? I mean, there is a commitment to this that... Honestly, it just puts me to shame. I mean, Paul says he's reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So he goes to the Jews, he goes to the synagogue, they hear him for a little bit, they start eventually like, no, we're not interested. So he's like, all right, fine, I'm gonna go to, I'm gonna go to the Gentiles. I'm gonna go to the, the average ordinary folks here in Ephesus, all right? With all of the things that they'd be bringing in, all of their questions, all of their cultural baggage, all of their doubts, all that. He's like, there. He reasons in the hall of Tyrannus every single day for two years. There's other like translations of the text, all right? Maybe you see this in your Bible. There might be a little note that gives this other description, all right, that says basically from the hours of 11 to four every day. Because here's how things would work in Ephesus. People would begin their workday, 7 a.m. approximately, and they'd work till 11. Then they'd have sort of a midday, sort of get a meal, get a nap, recover, and then they'd go back to work around four and work till nine, 9.30 at night. Paul, we also know, is bivocational. He works as a tent maker, all right? So Paul would have lived that schedule and then from 11 to four for two years, six days a week, 3,120 or whatever, some hours, he would have spent, all right, proclaiming the word of God. I come in this, this week, I let, help lead kind of two Bible studies this week for about an hour, um, and I'm preaching to you hopefully in under an hour this morning, right? Like, I'm like, dude, I'm tired, time change, woo, I'm out, like worn out. You know, I'm feeling like a gospel beast until I look at Paul, right? And like every single day, six days a week, he'd have a Sabbath, all right? 11 to four proclaiming. I got a Bible study set up. People are coming and going, and it tells us so that everybody in that region heard what would it look like if you and I took seriously our call to get the word out, to have conversations? Maybe it won't look exactly like this, but we have a word to declare. And so what I wanna do over the next few minutes as well is we also, many of you know this, there's a book in your Bible in the New Testament called the letter to the Ephesians. This is after the church gets started, Paul has to leave because he goes to new places, all right? And he writes this letter to encourage them. But we get some insight into, like, what was he actually declaring? So let me read this to you. Here's part of what Paul communicated. This is the word that needs to go out into our culture so that there might be this beautiful, powerful, redemptive disruption. So Paul writes them. It's kind of past tense because he said, this is your story. This was your story. 
But for anyone that's not a follower of Jesus, this is your story. This is the reality. And it's hard, difficult words, but they're in love. And you who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Like these are hard words, right? Guarantee you this wasn't on your coffee cup this morning, right? Like it's just not what we tend to do. All right, children of wrath, you, yeah. Like, but the reality, because of our sin, we're separated from God. And it's not just that, it's that we're part of, did you hear this? Like following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, there are forces at work opposing the kingdom of God. And until we see that, we won't actually even know what we're up against. And then these glorious words, but God, it continues, Ephesians 2, 4 to 7, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, so he doesn't ignore that, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you're here this morning, you're like, God's grace is amazing. It's only gonna get better. Like there's these immeasurable, there's these riches that are coming for you, this inheritance that you will have when Jesus one day splits the sky and he comes back to set everything right. Like that's where the story is heading for those that are in Christ. And it's all because of the richness of his mercy, his grace. You didn't earn it. If we were to continue reading verse eight, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doings that no one can boast. It is a gift of God. And so if you, even if you're here this morning, like, look at God's grace, but I got faith. Yeah, guess what? That was a gift too, so you can't claim any of it, all right? It humbles us and it causes us to worship. And so this leads to this question, will you and I have beautiful feet? Now, I'm doomed in that category in the literal sense. I have some of the ugliest feet in the planet, all right? But the Bible talks about feet in this way. It talks about it as heralds of this message. Paul would also write in this letter in the book of Romans, verse 10, 13 to 15, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, then how then, he says, he begins to just kind of work this out logically. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Prevailing proclamation. Tell people the good news of Jesus. Preaching does not mean from a stage on Sunday. It includes that, but it's far more than that. And there's a calling for all of us to make disciples. And so where the story goes, we get this prevailing proclamation and then this powerful demonstration. This has to be one of the most entertaining portions of all the scripture. If you don't think the Bible is interesting or funny, like, please pay attention to these next few verses, okay? It says this, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So this is some crazy stuff that's happening, right? Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. So they come on the scene, they're like, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. 
Now get this, you know you're having a bad day when this happens, all right? But the evil spirit answered them, so you get a response, all right? Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? You're in a terrifying spot right then. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. In the words of Matt Chandler, who I've heard teach on this, he says, hey, you wanna know if you lost a fight? If you showed up to the fight with pants and you left with no pants, you lost. Like, there's no way around that. That's what's happening. There's this powerful demonstration, all right? Now, in this, we think about evil spirits. C.S. Lewis had some good words for us in the screw tape letters. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So let's recognize there's very real opposition to the work of Jesus in his kingdom. It's not to be obsessed by it, it's not to be fearful of it, but it's also not to be dismissive. And so what I think is happening here, maybe a way to think about this in this particular thing is we get this demonstration of the power of God. Ephesus was consumed, I think, with a power idolatry. Like they loved that they were this place of influence and control and power. And what we see here, one way to might think about it is that heaven is actually breaking in. Now, we've seen abuses of this, right? Maybe you watch the late night person that's like, send me $15 and I'll send you a handkerchief that has my sweat on it or it was dipped in the Jordan River and it's gonna bring you healing. That's nonsense, it's stupid, save your money, don't do that, okay? But what we see Paul is happening here and it's these exceptional things that are taking place. It's just a demonstration and God is showing like, I am at work, my spirit is bringing healing. The heavenly realm means where everything is rightly ordered, diseases are being cured. People are being healed. Evil spirits are leaving people. Like heaven is breaking in. And I don't know what the particulars are gonna look like in our context. It might not always feel this dramatic. Even Luke tells us this is a bit of an exceptional thing that was happening. But God does bring healing. And God does wanna work. And the ultimate healing and miracle that takes place is what we read earlier in Ephesians chapter two, that you were dead and you've been made alive. Like if you're a Christian, you're a walking story of resurrection. If you're like, Hey, could there be a miracle in my life? If you trust in Jesus, you'll go from dead to alive. It's amazing. So whatever about the handkerchief, like that's amazing. But heaven is breaking in. Now, the problem is this, but you and I can't break into heaven, meaning this, like we're trying to steal the things of heaven to make a name for ourselves. That was what was going on with the sons of Sceva. Maybe another way to think about it is this, that they were trying to use Jesus as a means to their end. I wanna do this, all right? They're like, ooh, there's this power. We can tap into that. Let's get a little bit of this, this Jesus thing that's happening, and then we can make a name for ourselves. We can carve out our identity. We can maybe make some money off of this, whatever it happened to be. When you and I approach Jesus as a means to our end, we've missed it. Jesus is the end. Jesus is the one to be worshiped and glorified, and he's the, the one that our life should be centered around. Like, he's what? Like, at the end of the day, like, you get God. It's not God to bring you all these other things. Like you get to be in the presence of God, restored to your maker through the finished work of Jesus. And so we might look at the sons of Sceva and be like, what were they thinking? But how many of us go to God or bargain with God? Like, hey, I want a little bit of God kind of sprinkled in my life so that I might have this or it might work out. And we have very, very pragmatic reasons. And God says, you gotta trust me. There's a surrender and at the end of the day, 
I think these words are very, very true, that idolatry, look, look what happened to the sons of Sceva, right? They're beaten, they're bruised, and they're exposed. Like there was no power there. Their idolatry got exposed. They're looking at something else to bring, bring life. They weren't interested in Jesus. And the same is true for you and me. Anything that we give our life to, eventually that idol, that thing, it will turn on us. It will leave us beaten. It'll leave us bruised. It'll leave us exposed as people are like, this is all I've got. But God offers us something much better. God offers to heal us, to bind us up, to clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. So let's be mindful of the language. Again, in Ephesians, this letter that Paul writes, he says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Isn't it interesting to start reading these verses in light of the fact of like what happened in Ephesus? Paul's not just pulling that out of thin air. Maybe I'll talk about you know, the, the powers of this present darkness and this age and the spirits that are at work. It's like, no, he was there and he saw it. And he's like, put the full armor of God on. Have that belt of truth. Have the, these things. Go read Ephesians 6 later today and see the calling because we are in a very real battle. But God is equipping you. And it's not just written, this is not you put on the armor of God by yourself. It's written to a church, it's to a community. Let's do this collectively so that we might actually engage in the mission that Jesus had given to us. And so the last thing I think that we see that leads to this disruption of an entire culture, we'll close with this, is there's personal transformation. Maybe another way to think about it is this, that there's this ongoing work of growing in holiness, that there's this sanctification is the word that gets used. It's not about just the bare minimum to kind of get in, check the box. It's like, no, my whole life is devoted. And you begin to see people surrender. If we want to see our culture disrupted redemptively, to see people worship Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, like, how are we doing? Are you experiencing transformation? Am I experiencing transformation? What things am I holding on to? Or am I willing to actually surrender? And verses 17 to 20 speak of what happens. And so after the sons of Sceva flee, all right, verse 17, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled fear in the sense of awe and reverence and astonishment. People are becoming worshipers of Jesus. So here's what happens, verse 18. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. People that were caught up in all the wickedness that was in the, the culture of Ephesus. People that were like, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm, I'm still practicing these like magic arts and all these things. Like it would have been a very confusing time, all right? And so they're like, what do we do? And it says, verse 19, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The language there, the amount of silver, most commentators will say that somewhere in the, the realm of present day would be about $6 million worth. This isn't just some sort of, hey, I threw my Pearl Jam CD in the, uh, in the fire, right? If maybe that was your youth group experience, all right? I was always like, can I have that? Like, anyway, okay, so, but here's this, this, this moment. It's this surrender. It's not about just like, oh, you gotta get rid of everything. 
if Jesus was talking with Demetrius, you know what he would have said to him? He's like, man, I've given you the gifts as a silversmith. Use that for glorious purposes, not for idolatry. You don't gotta leave those things. It's not a call for you to go leave your career unless you're involved in something that's blatantly sinful. But there's this call like, will we surrender? And Paul says this in Ephesians 5, therefore be imitators of God. Like when you and I get up in the morning, like do you think about that? I have the opportunity to be an imitator of God today. Now again, not to earn anything because look at the next line, as beloved children. You're the beloved. God sings over you, rejoices over you with a loud singing. He's glad you're in the family. You are beloved. You've got nothing to prove. But from that place, you rest in that, that new identity that's been secured by the work of Jesus, that he lived a sinless life, that he died in your place, that he rose again, that he's coming back to set everything right. He's like, I got something amazing waiting for you. Like you're the beloved. When you realize that, like, okay, how can I live more like the way to be more like Jesus? So he says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then he says this, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. And I think oftentimes in our culture, we're like, I, I want to believe in Jesus. I sort of like this idea of him saving me from hell, but I don't want him to be Lord. I'm worried it would be too costly. I'm worried I might miss out. And the storyline of the Bible is like, you're only missing out if you try and keep these things to yourself. If you try and actually continue to live like the rest of the world, give in and satisfy the flesh, it is no way to live. It's will we surrender? Will we grow in holiness? So I'll close with this. If you remember that picture, kind of picturing yourself in Ephesus and you would see the temple of Artemis, uh, this is what it looks like today. Apparently there's one column that remains. The temple of Artemis got destroyed. One of the seven wonders of the world. People would flock to it, largest bank in the world, all sorts of commerce, all sorts of money tied around it, all sorts of worship that was happening. And so when the apostle Paul writes to this letter to the Ephesians, I'm gonna read these words, but now think about it in this context. The temple of Artemis is just a column that remains. There's nothing to speak of. In fact, there's uh, made a nest there, all right? It's like, yeah, all right, cool. That's what it's being used for in present day. But the church, the church is growing. The church is expanding. Jesus is continuing to build this church. The gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus' church. He is building something as his people, Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows what? Into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Is Paul just like, hey, what imagery can I use? No, the temple of Artemis. And he's like, I got something better. You're part of the church. You're being built into a holy temple in the Lord. You get to be part of this. And us being the church, the power of the spirit committed to Jesus, that's when disruption happens. 
That's when we begin to see a work of redemption. As we repent, as we confess our sins, as we rejoice in the good news of the gospel. And so I'm gonna close in prayer and I wanna invite you to think through this. And here's how we're gonna respond. I wanna give you some space. What do you need to repent of? What is the, an idol, something you've been clinging to? What has your heart been crying out? And I want you to remember that you, if you've accepted Jesus, like you are part of his family, the beloved, that you are in Christ, and that we're gonna rejoice together. And here's how we're gonna do that, all right? We're gonna rejoice through singing songs together. We're gonna rejoice by going to the Lord in prayer. There'll be folks back at the prayer uh, stations in the back corner. If you need prayer, go and do that. We're gonna give this morning. If you're a guest, no obligation to give. We're just thrilled that you're here. But giving is part of our act of worship. And we're going to participate in this meal that the Lord Jesus has given to us called communion or the Lord's Supper. So let me read these words and then I'll pray. And then we're going to respond the rest of our service. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes There'll be leaders on either side of the stage, and when you're ready, come up, take the bread, and dip in the cup. And this is a meal, if you're a follower of Jesus, to come up and remember and allow the Spirit to take these common elements and press them in in new and fresh ways so that your heart might rejoice about the identity that you've been given, that you might know the promises of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your kindness, your goodness, the one, that you are the one that lavishes mercy and grace upon us. There's nothing we can do to earn your affection. Thank you that you were willing to send your son Jesus on this ultimate rescue mission so that now we can be the church, that we can be built in this holy temple in the Lord, that we might see the culture and the communities in which you've placed us, we might see this disruption happen, God, that men, women, and children might have their lives transformed. But God, we know that you wanna do a work in us Before you'll use us, you want to do this work in our hearts. And so I pray now that your spirit would be at work. Lead us in repentance. God, let us cry out to you. Some maybe for the first time, God, and others for for us that are followers of you, like we need to continually have this life of repentance. And then may we remember the good news of the gospel and rejoice together. And so God, as we do that, I pray that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience great and abiding joy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.